AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. This episode contains discussions of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. If you or a loved one is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. At my desk, I sip my beer and straighten my back, suddenly aware that I am watching us as a family that I'm about to see what we were like together before time had scattered us off into our separate lives. Playing on the screen in front of me is evidence that we'd been together, proof that we existed, with clues to our disintegration. The possibility that my memories are, to whatever degree, real and verifiable. So I watch, hoping to find answers to questions I hardly have language for, about who we were during those years that shaped us. That's Margaret Kimball, illustrator, lettering artist and writer, author of the recent graphic memoir, And Now I Spill the Family Secrets. Margaret's story is about silence and memory and the powerful need to peel back the layers of secrecy and shame in order to move forward with grace, strength, and dignity. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves.
We grew up in Connecticut in Glastonbury, which is a really cute suburb of Hartford. And we lived on this little street called Northview Drive. And there were all these colonial houses. And it was a safe street, so we could just kind of roam freely around. And there was a little side street called Little Acres, and we could roam down there into the creek. And there were some woods, and there was a field beyond that. It felt infinite to me, like... When I go back there now, it's like such a tiny little street. But as a kid, you can just, you know, walking up the entire street felt like this giant journey. There was one time where my brother and I tried to run away and we went literally, I mean, probably 30 feet down the road. But we felt like we were, you know, miles from home. And my dad just stepped on the porch and screamed for us to come back home. And we immediately did. <laughs> it felt like we had gone like really far. And it felt that way when we went to Little Acres. We'd build forts there. There were all these twigs and branches. And I remember sitting in our woods, actually kind of near the shed, and just dreaming of tree forts I could build. I loved being in the really tiny woods. In the town, there was like a little downtown area. So near our church, we could ride bikes and go get donuts at the little pharmacy. There was a cute restaurant called Lottie's, which is still there, which I go to sometimes when I'm in Connecticut. You know, in many ways, it was a sort of visually idyllic childhood. And my mom was and is, she's like a very kind woman, but you know, I remember her as very tired and distracted. And I think she was just having three kids. And I remember maybe a little, when I was a little older, like maybe 10, her just constantly talking about this career she wanted to have. I think she wanted to be an English teacher and that, it made me feel guilty, like, sorry that I exist, you know, <laughs> sorry for your career. So that's what I think of her. I just think of her as like really tired and nice, although sometimes very angry, <laughs> but just like a tired person who kind of has limited resources to manage that exhaustion and her feeling of not having had the exact life she wanted is how I look at it now. And how about your dad? He is a workaholic. He was gone all week working, but he would play with us so much. So I remember on the weekends, there's two games that I remember really well. One was, I think we called it Monster, where he'd just like sit on the living room carpet and we'd go near him and he'd grab one of us and then we'd have to try and escape. It would just go on for hours. The other game we called Jail and we'd go to one of the local elementary schools, I think Button Ball was the one that had the best playground. So he would chase us around playing tag around the elementary school or the playground. And then when we got caught, we'd have to go into jail and all the kids, any kid that was on the playground would start playing. So he'd be, you know, chasing like 10 kids. So I remember him playing a lot, which I also feel like it's probably not a super fair memory. Like my mom's exhausted and tired and my dad's just so playful and great, but... I think he was having his own struggles, but when we were with him, that's what I remember. Yeah, there's, there's so much in your story that really illustrates the way that memory plays tricks on us or sometimes lays down tracks, like invisible tracks within us that we can't really access or don't really know what images or snippets of conversation or any of it means until way, way later when the pieces of the puzzle sort of fall together. Within the idyllic, sweet landscape of Margaret's childhood, there were indeed 
hidden struggles. But as a small child, of course she doesn't see them, even though perhaps she intuits them. She adores her older brother and wants to do everything he does. Not only do they get lost in the woods together and build forts, but when he starts to ride a bike, she wants to ride one too. When she's four, she misjudges a corner, falls down, and has a pretty bad accident. But this is just one of the seminal and destabilizing events that occur that year. The other happens on Mother's Day. That morning, my mom asked my dad to take us to church on a Sunday. So he did. I think I was four, and my youngest brother was 10 months, and my older brother must have been six. So he took us to church, and she stayed home and I think kind of spun out of control and was looking in the mirror and having all these really negative thoughts about herself and finally decided that we would be better off if she was dead. And so she had been prescribed something like Xanax. I don't know if it was actually Xanax, but something like that, some anti-anxiety medication. She went up to the shed in our backyard and she grabbed a belt too. She was planning to hang herself, but she went to the shed and took all the pills. I mean, I think there were 11 or 13, something like that. And then downed it with some vodka and then immediately became unconscious. So that's where my dad found her after church. You were four years old. So what, if anything, do you remember about that day? Our shed was kind of up a little hill and there were these um, stone steps that just were on a little path back into the woods. I remember this picture in my mind of my dad carrying my mom across his arms and bringing her into the house and kind of brushing past me. It was like an image in my mind that I just thought was maybe fake or I had dreamed it or something. Margaret has a hazy memory of that image from Mother's Day 1988, but never fully knows the context of what happened. The details about the pills and vodka and belt, those were unknown to her childhood self. It isn't until 15 years later, when she's 19 years old, that she receives a call from her brother who tells her he's just learned from their father that their mother had attempted suicide that day. And what does she do with that information? What so many of us do with what we can't yet handle. She files it away. You know, one of the things I often think about about secrets is that only part of the challenge when one finds out something that was a secret is the secret itself. It's also when we find out what we find out and whether we have the the muscles or the ability psychologically, emotionally, spiritually to absorb what we're learning. And, I mean, to me, so much of your story is about this very powerful need that comes over you over time to learn and excavate as much of the truth as you possibly can. Um, But that doesn't happen right away, right? That doesn't happen when you're 19 and you get that information. Right. I mean, I love the way you're describing that, um, like the excavation, because as you were speaking, I'm thinking that my brother's phone call was like this stone on a pile. I was so angry about my mom. When I'm 16, she attempts suicide again. And... I was so angry about that because it just seemed like she didn't care about us. I don't feel that way anymore, (laughs) for the record. But 
when he called and told me that, I just kind of put it on that pile of anger and just, I didn't have any way to think about it other than to say like, of course, of course that's what happened. And then it took me years. I mean, yeah, I think 15 or 17 years or something to really unpack. Was your sense as you grew up that if someone had asked you, do you think, is your mother depressed or are you worried about your mother? What would you have said as a kid? I would have said, what is depressed? Did you have a sense that something was amiss? You know, not until I was 10. The first time that I was aware, she went to the hospital and my dad talked to me about it. That's when I first became aware of it. Before that, I knew she got mad, especially at me. By this time, Margaret's parents had been divorced for a couple of years. When Margaret's with her mom, she's often on the receiving end of her mother's anger. She's sent to her room all the time. When she's with her dad, she struggles to communicate with him. She's pretty sure her dad has a girlfriend. And the way she eventually confirms this is by showing him a piece of paper on which she's written, Dad, do you have a girlfriend? Circle, yes or no. So, enough said. But in fact, the family's lack of communication stretches much further back, all the way back to her mom and dad's own secretive histories. You describe your father as someone who doesn't know how to put language to feeling, which really comes from his own history and you know, various difficult and even tragic things in his own history. His sister Peggy drowning at the age of 13 in a lake while he was there, and the way that these things never got talked about, you know, that there was this kind of silence on both sides of your family. And your mother came from a mentally ill mother, but that was never talked about. And there's a line in your book where you say, your forebears want the secrets disappeared. You know, like, if you, don't, if you don't talk about it, then maybe it never happened. I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, secrets, sometimes I think secret is another word for shame. And I just think my parents, in their own ways, feel so much shame over things that have happened and so much disappointment about the way their lives have unfolded in some ways. And I think it's too much for them to talk about. Not long after Margaret's father circles yes on that slip of paper, he marries his then-girlfriend, Janice. At around the same time, Margaret's mother is hospitalized for a second time and diagnosed with manic depression. Just before her mother's hospitalization, Margaret notices that her mom is buying a ton of jewelry that she can't remotely afford, acting completely out of character. As time passes and her mom's behavior becomes more erratic, Margaret learns to read for signs like this, signs of her mother's instability. Her watchfulness becomes part of the texture of family life. I think it's it's an education you get really quickly. My mom was such a foundational figure for me. At that point, she was still my best friend. And I suddenly realized, or thought I realized, that she could disappear at any moment. And so I needed to know, like, what would the signs be so I could help her. So I learned pretty quickly. And, you know, they stuck with me. Like, later on when she would have an episode 
I mean, I can recognize it immediately. I think it's just something that once you can see those signs, it's just, it doesn't leave you, or at least it hasn't left me. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. When Margaret enters the sixth grade, she goes to a new school. And at first... She clocks this as an ideal time for a fresh start, an opportunity to peel away from her complicated home life. But the complications persist, and now her mom is not the only one grappling with illness. Margaret herself develops a number of inexplicable physical ailments. In the meantime, perhaps not coincidentally, her parents are in a custody battle, which her father ultimately wins. I remember throwing up a bunch of times in fifth and sixth grade, and I remember those moments, but I didn't realize that they had happened so close together and so consistently during that time period, during the custody battle. So they seemed so strange. It wasn't like I had strep throat, like I didn't have anything diagnosable. So I just wondered if they were related to the stress from, you know, going to psychologists and answering questions about my parents, which were clearly going to put me into loyalty binds and going to therapists and talking to them about which house I felt safest at or my issues with Janice. 
now I just look at it and I'm like, oh, of course those were related. Like my getting sick and all the stress of trying to navigate my loyalty to both my parents. Your mother and Janice are about as different as two women could be in terms of the way that they live, the way that they run their households, um, just their energy, who they are. At first, Janice seems really worldly. She read The New Yorker, The New York Times. She lived in New York City for a while. And she loves art and she loves music. And so she seems very cultured. And she's fun. Like, she, you know, immediately subscribed me to Teen Bop and all the, like, tween magazines that I thought were, like, amazing. And would buy me posters of celebrities like Jonathan Taylor Thomas to put on my wall. So she's, like, cultured but also loves pop culture. And so it's great. And she loves shopping. And she seemed to me like a breath of fresh air at the time. But soon that breath of fresh air feels more like a cold wind. Janice's attitude toward Margaret changes. Unlike Margaret's mother, who has a sort of anything-goes approach to house rules, Janice runs a tight ship. Spills are not tolerated. Some couches are off-limits. And Margaret and her brothers are banned from the kitchen. I mean, entirely. They are not allowed to enter the kitchen of their own home unless Janice is there. As the tensions build... Janice and Margaret's father have a child of their own, a daughter named Katie, and the divide widens further. When Margaret calls Katie her sister, Janice corrects her and says she's her half-sister. Janice does everything she can to keep them apart. That was shocking. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I wonder if that divide was sort of always there Janice married my dad and they had never lived together until they got married and we all had never lived together. And so I think she was kind of signing up for something and she just didn't have any clue what it might be like. And I think my dad didn't have any clue of what kind of person she was to live with. But, you know, before Katie was born, when they lived, there was a year, I think, that they lived together before she was born maybe two years, and the house was immediately filled with Janice's belongings. And my dad would say, oh, it's because, you know, I lost everything in the divorce or something like that. And I remember when she got pregnant, she just started snapping at us. And my dad kept saying, oh, she's just pregnant. You know, she's just not feeling well. I wondered, is it because she's pregnant or (laughs) is it something else? And then when we all moved in together, it became clear that she just, you know, had her way of doing things and was not really interested in compromising. We weren't allowed to do our own laundry, which, you know, should sound like a dream. Like I would love to not do my own laundry now, but it was weird because at my mom's house, you know, from the age of 10, she was like, you're going to do your own laundry. You're old enough. You know how to do it. And then we get to Janice's house and all the laundry runs through her. I can't use the, I couldn't, I never once used the machines. And I don't even know what they look like. And again, the silence and the way that things don't get really talked about or get um, sort of underplayed by your father. It's like, that's just how, it, that's how she is, or making excuses until it reaches a point where you're a senior in high school and that's the year that your mom makes another suicide attempt 
And it's also the year that your dad and Janice split up. Yeah, Janice and I fought almost the entire time, but the fights were never productive. And they, I don't think, ever really addressed the underlying issues, which probably required a lot of therapy for her to deal with her childhood issues, whatever they might be. And then for me to try and understand why she was the way she was. So, yeah, of course, eventually in that environment, it reaches a fever pitch and then everybody disperses. And then my mom, I don't know, you know, I had become kind of distant from her. She moved a bunch of times in that time period. She moved two or three times. And I probably saw her maybe every other weekend. And so I wasn't totally connected to what was happening in her life. And when I talked to her at one point and realized she was manic, I just said, you know, I think you're manic. And she just yelled at me and didn't agree. Now Margaret is in her senior year of high school, a time usually filled with feelings of freedom, excitement, elation. But Margaret's senior year is instead weighed down by the heft of Janice leaving her father and her mother's ongoing struggles with mental illness. But here is where her resilience begins to really take form and shape. She finds comfort in therapy, where she can safely examine the troubles of her family. In addition, she sets off on a number of healing expeditions to faraway places, through landscapes which allow her to physically, psychologically, and spiritually distance herself from her family in order to turn inward, to heal, and to grow. I was angry, and I was just trying to be okay, so I did a bunch of backpacking trips. I took a backpacking trip in high school out to around Moab, Utah for three weeks with Outward Bound, and that helped me kind of center myself and feel capable. You know, when you're hiking and they say, like, well, if you break your leg, you're still going to have to hike yourself out of here. (laughs) You know, you're like, okay, like, I'm going to really focus. And then the other thing during that first backpacking trip was that I realized, this sounds really morbid, but it was really helpful to me, which (laughs) I was, you know, hiking in the mountains and the canyons and feeling like it doesn't matter if I die. If I fall off the side, because at first it was really hard to kind of walk because there was like loose rock and it was hurting my ankles and I was carrying like a 65 pound backpack and I was really scared. And then I was like, if I fall off this mountain, and die the earth doesn't care it just like absorbs my body and that made me feel somehow calmer like my life is small and so I can figure out what my priorities are and what I want to focus on and try and aim for that I'm just like a blip in the history of the earth and that smallness made me feel safe and like centered So I took another backpacking trip to Alaska in college in a summer between years, I think after my freshman year. So that helped me a ton just to kind of feel calm. Um, And then, you know, I ignored it until I took a class with Lynn Bloom. She's retired now, but she was a professor at the University of Connecticut, and she taught the autobiography class there. I read all these memoirs, and I suddenly was like, oh my God, these books are teaching me how to live, or like giving me guidance that I don't have otherwise. And so from there, I started writing kind of lightly about my mom. 
and what had happened. And it just built up over time. And I took more independent studies with her and read more memoirs and just kind of slowly chipped away at that until I got to grad school. And then I really tried to unpack the story as much as I could. We'll be right back. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. So Margaret begins to unpack. She's moved by the art of memoir and realizes that this will be the way to ask and hopefully answer the questions that so defined her childhood, namely the nature of her mom's illness and the reason behind her multiple attempts to take her own life. But as is the case when we grapple with family secrets, it's a slow and rocky journey. Remember that call Margaret receives when she's 19? and her brother tells her he's learned about their mom's first suicide attempt on Mother's Day, 1988? Well, it takes five years, and it isn't until Margaret's 24, when she's actively writing the story of her family, that she decides to directly ask the questions she needs to ask. I didn't have the wherewithal to articulate a question. And I didn't feel like I had one. I was angry, and I was just kind of like, oh, of course she did that. I wasn't empathetic. I wasn't 
really thinking about what it must have been like for her. I was just sort of shoving it away and not thinking it was anything I had to address or that there was any way to address it because it was so far in the past. And I'm like, well, we survived. We're fine. She survived. It's fine. It doesn't matter. While also, I think always in the back of your mind is like, for me, is probably fear and maybe shame of like, why did that happen? Did she not love us? Was she okay? Like, what happened? What happened indeed? As it turns out, it isn't just Margaret's mom's mental state in question. At around this time, Margaret invites her siblings to a family reunion of sorts in Kentucky, where she's living with her boyfriend, Christian. It's supposed to be a fun weekend of bourbon tastings and card games. Though Margaret and her brothers have always been sort of rough and tumble with each other, this time her brother, Ted, seems off. He punches a table, his violence catching everyone off guard, and the darkness doesn't subside. The next day, Ted is still deeply and inexplicably distraught, and the weekend is ruined. So we all go to bed angry, and then the day after that, he just refuses to come with us. We had, like, some stuff planned, I think a bourbon tour, and he skipped it. He just stayed home and didn't speak to anybody. And so finally, in the evening, Christian just looked at him and said, are you okay? And he just burst into tears, and I went out and talked to him, and he just was like, no one listens to me. No one understands me. And I was kind of like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, it just seemed like such a big reaction for such a small thing. How many times have we yelled at each other? How many times have we just been like, piss off? We're like a little rough with each other all the time. And so none of us think anything of it. And then he said, I don't know what's happening to me. And I was kind of taken aback. I just like sort of noted it. I didn't say anything at the time, but I was like, what does that mean? And it just sounded a lot bigger. Remember... Margaret has had some early life training in this, reading the signs. She's developed her hypervigilant skills with regard to her mother. Now it appears that the same level of watchfulness she practiced as a child is needed for her brother. He's been acting paranoid, calling himself a targeted individual, and ascribing to out-there ideas and conspiracy theories. Did alarm bells go off for you at all? in terms of his behavior, which had, you know, kind of a paranoid aspect to it, you eventually look up the phrase targeted individual and, you know, it takes you to, this is something that people who are schizophrenic often say. Yeah, so I didn't realize that until I think 2016, a couple years later. I didn't put any of the pieces together, any, like nothing was flagged for me except for his comment like I don't know what's happening to me and I just thought that sounds really big and scary and I'm not sure what he means but he's always been unconventional I remember in high school like he would do weird stuff you know like for example he wanted a parking spot in the senior lot and there weren't any he got one in a side lot and so he went in the middle of the night and painted an additional parking spot and started parking there, you know, which is funny, but he did a million things like that and then would just be a jerk to the principal when you get called in and get in trouble. He'd just be like, what? And he'd be really belligerent. And I just remember thinking like, why are you so weird? Like somebody wanted to fight him once and he bought boxing gloves 
And it's like, what? <laughs> You're going to box in a ring? Like, what are you doing? So he just always seemed so unconventional to me. And it was funny until it wasn't. One of the things that's so moving in your story is the, the way in which you put all these pieces together. In 2016, your mom gives you videos that were transferred from film to CD. Family footage, family videos, which is, you know, a treasure trove for anyone who is ever trying to understand anything about their family. The role of, of film, of photographs, of being able to just see with your own eyes certain things that, you know, happened or didn't happen. So it's 2016 when you, when you head home, which is when you get, you know, all of this, like, download of information. You get the films and you get the, you know, you, you go searching through the attic, you find all this stuff. Yeah. When I sat down to watch those videos, it just unlocked a whole world for me. Like, I just was shocked to see us as a family, which it sounds so mundane, but I just hadn't, I mean, we have photographs, but I hadn't seen any footage, at least not in a decade or two. I just don't even remember, like, footage of us interacting. And so I was just struck. And then realizing the time frame of the video, because I saw tension between my parents in the video, and I'm like, so when was this taken? <laughs> What's going on in our lives? I called my mom. I just started talking to her more and asking her more questions and coming up with questions that I could think about, you know, like, because you don't know what you don't know. And I just had no idea what to even ask. And so my mom would always say, you can ask me anything. But it's like, what do you ask when the question is not even clear in your mind and the problems are not even clear in your mind? So that video really helped give me a starting point anyway for asking her questions about that year in particular. And then from there, you know, more questions unraveled as we, as we spoke. That's such a great and interesting point, the idea of not knowing the questions. Because often, you know, someone will get to a point of saying, ask me anything. But if you don't know, you, you can't. And you write, you write in the book, while you're watching the films, you write, a familiar feeling bloomed in my chest, that wide-eyed desperation of wanting to hold us all together. And I thought that was really moving because it was like you were accessing your child self. You know, that, that even the language bloomed in my chest, but the wide-eyed desperation of wanting to hold us all together is probably something that you felt as a child without even knowing what that meant. And then one of the really beautiful things about being able to go back as, as an adult who's done a lot of work and sort of reach a handout in a way to that child is to kind of intervene in that after the fact. Yeah, I, you know, that's a, that's a lovely way to put it. Um, my therapist would really like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a surprising feeling because I think I told myself a story after their divorce about like, yeah, they weren't good for each other. They needed to be apart. It's best for everybody. I still don't remember wanting them to stay together. But I remember being sad when they told us they were separating. And when I watched that and I felt that feeling, it was such a child feeling, like a childhood feeling of like thinking that something in my behavior, just like I'm watching it in my 30s. And in my mind, I'm like, if I do something different, I can help them. Like I can keep them together. But I think I must have just 
wondered that a lot to myself how do I help them or what do I do differently you know but like when I think about getting sent to my room all the time I think sometimes oh well if I didn't make my mom so mad maybe things would have been different or something when there is a record of some sort um like those films were for you you look for evidence you know this sort of unlocks you you know the the sleuth in you and you go to the attic and and go through photos and diaries and videos and notes and just anything that you can get your hands on and you even you know make a pilgrimage back to the old house and the shed where your mother had gone that day in 1988 the current owners are oblivious about history which of course is always the case they've strung up lights and there are these lime green chairs and it's all kind of festive and and pretty and and of course they don't know the history but you're there to try to you know dig in and find out as much as as much as you can right it's during this pivotal trip home when ted's worrying behaviors begin to crystallize for margaret that she's also immersing herself in the family artifacts and memorabilia she's at a point of readiness to know more to take in more to know what questions to ask what to look for in terms of signs and patterns She and Ted are in the car together, and he's acting really fearful and on edge. And so she digs into that, too, and begins to research what might be going on with Ted. I mean, he helps me with that by saying things like targeted individual and gang stalking. Those aren't words or terms I ever would have known to look up or think about. And he was so distraught in that car ride. Like, he... He was wearing this hoodie and covering his face. It was just like so odd. He just looked really distressed. And so when he started using those terms, I just like locked them in my mind and was like, I need to figure out what's going on. And that's, yeah, when I started looking, it scared me and I didn't want to frighten him and I didn't want to like judge him. And I didn't quite know how to approach him with with empathy, and it took me a while to figure that out. Margaret continues her immersion into the family history to work on her book, and eventually she meets up with Ted for a somewhat official interview at a coffee shop. He knows she's writing this book, and she makes the generous move, as the memoirist, to give him the opportunity to tell his own story, to convey his experiences in his own words, how could I possibly describe his experiences as thoroughly as he could? I wanted to give him space to do that and to feel safe about the book since he was going to be in it. After a few years pass and Margaret has asked all the questions she can ask, mind all the footage and data she possibly can, it's 2020 and the book is coming out. She shares it with her mother, her father, her siblings. In a way, the very act of writing the graphic memoir is what gives both Margaret and her family the chance to excavate and dissect their memories. In the end, Margaret's family has a very loving response to the book and the awareness that for each of them, the story is different and uniquely their own. I feel like the book ultimately put language to all these experiences and all these things that had happened. And I had just hours and hours and hours of conversations with my mom about her experiences. And the book gave us the space to do that. And I don't think we would have had 
an opportunity otherwise because it's hard to just go to somebody's house and be like tell me about the darkest periods of your life for no reason at all (laughs) um so I think everything was said that could be said and it kind of allowed us to move on I think from all of our anger and sadness about and maybe shame I hope about what had happened for my dad he you know I asked him a few questions throughout the process like about my grandparents and I wasn't sure if my grandfather spanking Ted had really happened or if I had imagined that and my dad was like no that absolutely happened (laughs) I would say like this is specifically for the book I'm specifically asking this question for this reason and he needed that information up front but he said I want you to write whatever you want to write but I'm not going to read it because I lived it and I don't need to go back there and I don't want and he didn't want to influence me he's like I don't want to read it and then change what you've said about it through my own memory and so he just didn't but has been really supportive I don't feel upset about it I feel sad that he's so sad about the past I wish he could you know be okay talking about it but that might not just not happen for him how does it feel now uh, you're a brand new mother yourself you just had a baby and you've birthed this book into the world how does it feel to have finally been able to assemble the shards of this story so that it makes something that's whole and that's coherent and is this something you feel that you can now uh, move on from is there moving on I think so I mean I feel incredibly calm like I feel like the book gave me solace about everything that happened the suicide attempts and my mom's mental illness and just mental illness in our family like there was a long period where I didn't talk about it and then I would kind of dole it out as like a little party trick like oh well my mom's bipolar or something you know like just to get attention or something and now it feels complicated and I feel like I have empathy for everyone in my family and you know I was thinking the other day looking at my baby and I was thinking like I wonder if he'll want to write about whatever torments we do to him (laughs) as he grows up And I hope he feels free to. And same with my stepdaughter. Like, I just want them to feel like they can say anything they want to say about their childhood. It's not perfect. You know, like, no no childhood is perfect. I don't think. I think it's really hard for everyone. And I hope they feel free to, like, ask us questions and talk to us about their experiences and heal in whatever ways they need to when they're older. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram, at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, 
check out my memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee visit rightrug.com that's r-i-t-e-r-u-g.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you 24-month financing is available with approved credit for 90 years we've been right here right now Right Rug Flooring.